Hi, I'm Matthew Gore from Wellington, New Zealand. Welcome to the Candid Frame. For those of us who are blessed enough to travel the world, you have likely visited a place that you've fallen in love with. It's a part of the world that provides you an experience so unique, so special, that no other place can even compare. And if you're very lucky, you may have had the chance to visit that location repeatedly and enjoyed it in an even more intimate and personal way. Ernesto Bazan had just such an experience when he first visited Cuba. But the difference was, it became the place that he called home. For him, Cuba was a unique country that not only reminded him of his native Sicily decades before, it also became the inspiration for his life's work, which has resulted in three books on a country that welcomed him, forced him out, and later welcomed him again. I went to Havana in November of 92, and I was shocked, because as I told you before, I felt like I was in Palermo, but not the Palermo of the 1960s, in the Palermo of the 1940s, because of the time warp that the island finds itself in even now. So I was like in a place that I'd never been before. I mean, I travel all across Asia, uh, Africa, you know, you name it, uh, South America. But, you know, Cuba was unique. While many say that life as a photographer is a dream of theirs, Ernesto can claim that his inspiration to become a photographer came from an actual dream. As a teenager, he awoke one morning with the idea clearly burned into his mind, and it changed his life forever. Uh, because I became a photographer thanks to a dream at 17 here in Palermo. Uh, I was about to graduate from high school and I uh, heard this voice in which laconically told me, you got to become a photographer. The, what I find the most amazing is not the dream in itself, but the fact that I remember that the next morning and uh, I went straight to my father who had already sort of planned and dreamed about my future career, meaning becoming a doctor like he was. And I told him, Dad, I know what I'm going to be doing. <laughs> and now, since I'm a father of twin boys, <laughs> I know how crazy that might have sounded to him. We'll talk to Ernesto about his decades-long love affair with Cuba and how his photographs go well beyond the well-worn stereotypes. And you'll learn how a tobacco farmer taught him the greatest lesson for becoming a great photographer. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Well, I really appreciate you sitting down and talking with me. I've enjoyed your work, and uh, I've been familiar with your work, and for whatever reason, I just didn't make the connection. And I'm glad that uh, it finally happened, so I have a chance to talk with you. You know, The past couple of weeks, being able to go get deeper and deeper into your work and into your story is really fascinating it's very inspiring thank you so as you said you're in, you're in sicily now and that's where you 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 grew up and yeah. your work is largely tied to cuba and one of the things you've often said about your attraction to cuba is that it reconnected you with your childhood in in sicily there are aspects of of cuba that 
it was I guess it was something that you were were eager to sort of reclaim in in, in a way. And I and I'm and I'd like you to take me back to growing up in Sicily, and describe to me what were some of those things that you were so in love with that eventually led you to fall in love with another another country, Cuba. Yes. Um, the first thing that I should say is that we share the fact that both Sicily and Cuba were dominated by the Spanish for several centuries. So the architecture of the old Palermo is very similar to the architecture in uh, Havana. My first memories of the old Palermo comes with my grandmother. Now you can see my mother coming by mm-hmm. in the back. She's 87. And, you know, I just celebrated my birthday, so that's one of the reasons why I'm here. Oh, happy birthday. Thank you. I turned 60 just on August 1st. Uh, So the first memories of the old Palermo, which is so much like old Havana even now, as a matter of fact, I was there today with my wife eating uh, specialties of of Palermo's uh, market, uh, which is boiled octopus and you squeeze some lemon on it just delicious because it's just fresh from the sea but I I was telling her that I used to go to this market called Vucciria meaning uh, a lot of noise Vucciria is a Sicilian uh, expression I used to go there when I was eight with my grandmother with my paternal grandmother Ida she would take me just because she would like to shop there and uh, it was quite beautiful. We had a ritual. She would hold my hand. I was a little boy. And all those uh, scents, all those uh, beautiful odors from the vendors, from the market, would be inhaled not just by my nostrils, but also by my internal soul, by my soul, by internal eye, that I referred to a lot when it comes to my pictures. And uh, we would stop in different locations to buy food, but there was always one that (laughs) was very special because it was like a treat to me. And there was the guy that would sold the anchovies. (laughs) So in in Sicily, you can buy the anchovies that have been salted for a long time, that have been cured. Uh, so my my grandmother would buy, say, 200 grams, half a pound, something like that. And uh, the guy would pick them up from the big uh, tin can, still salted with their skin and their bones on it, on them. And then he would skin them one by one. And the very first one that he would skin, my grandmother would pick it up from the uh, were from the wooden uh, cutting board, and she would feed it into my mouth. <laughs> um. So, when I went to Cuba, I mean, of course, there weren't anchovies to be seen because I arrived there in '92, right in the middle of the special period. Uh, but you know, the architecture. And uh, Palermitans and Cubans, Havaneros, you know, share the same joy, especially in the old quarters, in the old neighborhoods, to to spend their life part, uh, mostly outside of their homes, sitting outside and interacting among themselves. So the, these were some of the things that struck me, besides the fact that 
uh, I don't know if you've been to Cuba, but it's in a time, still in a time warp. So basically, uh, my mother, who has been writing, as you might have seen in some of my books, she said that, uh, you know, it reminds me of Palermo of the 1940s and 50s, because when she went to give her last farewell to my grandfather, that I'm named after him, Ernesto, she was pregnant with me. And uh, she asked him to get inside of her and into the, the baby that she was carrying. So in a writing that she, she wrote for one of my books, she said that my paternal grandfather, Ernesto, must have come into me uh, so that I could tell her years later when I first got to Cuba that uh, Cuba, Havana, in particular, reminded me of the Palermo of the 1940s, which I did not personally leave because I was born in 1959. But, you know, 1959 is uh, the year of the triumph of the revolution in Cuba. And as I said, I'm named Ernesto. And as you know, Che Guevara was one of the leaders of the revolution. I mean, briefly, even though I don't want, as I like to say, I don't want to convince anybody <laughs> about my faith, but I am a strong believer uh, because I became a photographer thanks to a dream at 17 here in Palermo. Uh, I was about to graduate from high school and I uh, heard this voice in which laconically told me, you got to become a photographer. The, what I find the most amazing is not the dream in itself, but the fact that I remember that the next morning. And uh, I went straight to my father, who had already sort of planned and dreamed about my future career, meaning becoming a doctor like he was. And I told him, Dad, I know what I'm going to be doing. <laughs> and now, since I'm a father of twin boys, I know how crazy that might have sounded <laughs> to him. What, what was your idea of what a photographer was when um, the idea came in into, your, into your head? What? Well, I mean, in Sicily, we've had a good tradition of, of street photography. So I started taking pictures around 14 uh, years old and I took the, at the beginning the usual photographs that any amateur would take meaning my brothers younger brothers my parents you know and then through a relative of mine uh, I start developing uh, you know more of a not photographic culture so he shared with me you know those Sicilian photographers uh, the work of uh, Robert Frank, Cartier-Bresson, among others. You know, I had a vague idea of what I wanted to become, but I would say around 17, 18, even prior to my dream, I started taking my first decent street pictures. And when you arrived in, um, to, to study here in the States, had you already sort of started refining who you wanted to be as, as, as a photographer or did you find that it was your time in, in, in your studies that allowed you to discover what that was? Uh, to be honest with you, I would say that this has been an ongoing development in the last 42 years. 
um, of my photographic career because, um, I mean, I was very raw at the 17. Uh, being at the School of Visual Arts in New York sped up quite, quite amazingly my growth process, but still I was a baby as I tell my students, you know, when I even got out of uh, the agency, of the got out of uh, the School of Visual Arts, I graduated in 1990, uh, 1992, 1982, sorry. And um, I don't know if you read that, but I was kind of, 92 was an amazing year for me because I graduated from the School of Visual Arts. I won a very important prize in Arles, France, uh, which was dedicated to young photographers, which allowed me to travel across Asia for seven months, all expenses paid. And on top of that, I got into, I got accepted into Magnum, uh, which was uh, an interesting experience. That's all I'm going to say about the agency. <laughs> I'm going to be diplomatic. Uh, more diplomatic than I used to be. But, you know, it was not really meant for me to be a Magnum photographer, and let's leave it at that. My destiny was different, and, you know, I can say now, 42 years later, that I'm a wild horse running at his own pace, and, um, you know, the workshops have played a major role in my career, but they came 20 years after working as a professional photographer, freelance photographer, first for Magnum, then for another agency, uh, which then I call Archive, that then uh, folded, and then, you know, other agency. And then finally I said, I'm not an agency photographer, and I became a freelance, and uh, I was a freelance for 20 years until I got fed up with being a commercial photographer because of things that magazines were doing to me that I didn't like too much. And I said to myself, this time I did not dream about that, but I, I say to myself, why don't you try to teach? And I mean, and for the last 18 years, I've been teaching and teaching workshops has played a major, major role into my life and into my photography. And I will explain that later. So, what led you to go to Cuba? Uh, curiosity. I just uh, broken up a long relationship, and I've always dreamed about going to this island that people had told me about. So, you know, I felt like I regained my freedom because I was about to marry this lady, and luckily I didn't. And uh, so I, I went to Mexico because at the time, as you know, there was, I mean, there's still the embargo even now, but it was even stronger at the time. Uh, and I bought a one-week package tour from Mexico, and I went. I went to Havana in November of 92, and I was shocked because, as I told you before, I felt like I was in Palermo, but not the Palermo of the 1960s, in the Palermo of the 1940s, because of the time warp that the island finds itself in even now. So I was like in a place that I'd never been before. I mean, I travel all across Asia, uh, Africa, you know, you name it, uh, South America. 
But, you know, Cuba was unique. So after the one week, but for a moment, I mean, I was free after all. I didn't have to go back to a girlfriend or anybody. So I went to the travel agency and bought a two-week package tour, not knowing how much the island was going to change my life in an amazing and uncanny way. So, you know, you speak of the sort of the similarities that uh, Cuba had to where you had had grown up, but it is its own distinct entity. You know, when you you kind of go into a place like that and you get and you have so, so many strong feelings that remind you of your childhood, the initial images largely get informed by that. And I would assume there's a lot of projection that's happening because you're you're making photographs of things that remind you of other, other things. And tell me about the process of being able to f- discover the things that are different, that are innately Cuban. Does that question make sense? Yes, it does. Okay. Uh, I mean, there are, as I said, similarities, even in the way we look. But um, what make Cuba unique uh, was uh, the revolution, uh, the way things were run, uh, the fact that uh, I would see <laughs> those old American cars. I mean, it's a stereotype that it's unique to Cuba. There is no other place in the world where you see Cadillac or, uh, you know, you name it, uh, American brand from the 1940s and 50s still perfectly running through, you know, through the streets. Uh, the communism and the way Cuban communism was shaped, was unique as well to that island. And the people, yes, were similar and yet uh, to the people from Sicily or to Pal- from Palermo, but I felt them they were even more generous with their time than the people here. Uh, I mean, sometimes I would get invited to a house which had nothing just a little bit of coffee and without hesitation, without thinking for a moment and without expecting anything back, people would offer this coffee to me uh, in a beautiful, beautiful, generous way. So these are some of the things that have stuck in my heart, in my mind. Right now, I can also tell you that having married a Cuban and having had uh, twin Cuban boys, uh, which are also 50% Italian. But, you know, I feel um, 50% Cuban, to say the least. And uh, I think that shows in my work, uh, because uh, as Vicky Goldberg brilliantly put it in her afterward in my first book, Bazan Cuba, instead of being one of the many, and, you know, I included myself many times in the past, uh, of the photographers parachuted in and out of a country and spending at most two, three weeks, three months, I was, I became an inside because uh, as soon as I saw <laughs> the size of my wife's belly, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I realized that the time had come. We had already married, but we didn't know that she was expecting a baby and we didn't know she was expecting twins and I'll tell you a nice story which you know my life is full of we were actually talking about that this morning with her in the in the old market 
we were, she's from Camagüey, which is in the center of the island. And uh, the ultrasound of the hospital in Camagüey was not working. So we had to take a train all the way to Havana to find out what was she suspecting because we were all shocked to see how a larger belly was after, say, two or three months of pregnancy. So we took the train, we got off the train in Havana, and we were walking out to get a collective taxi, as they're called. And there he was, this taxi driver, standing in front of us. He looked at her, and he said, you're expecting twin boys. They're mm. going to be one of the most beautiful things that is going to happen in your, in your life. But at the same time, those twin boys and your life with your companion will create a lot of enviousness in Cuba and you will be forced to leave. And my wife, my, few, my wife and I looked at each other in disbelief and then he simply added, <laughs> since I was born, I have this gift that I can see inside of people. So <laughs> with that in mind, <laughs> we got into his taxi, he dropped us off, uh, where he had to drop. And the next morning, we did go to a hospital where the ultrasound machine did work, and we got the confirmation that we were expecting twin boys. And then, as you might have read, you know, we were forced out of Cuba because of my workshops, which was a great blessing in disguise. I keep thinking more and more about that, and I keep telling my family because I was able... By being forced out uh, to to turn my three Cuban-born member of my family into citizens of the world, like you and I, having the freedom to just pick up and leave at, at your leisure, rather than having to ask for permission every time we had to leave Cuba, like I I used to do. You know, what's fascinating about your work, especially because you spend so much extended time in Cuba, living there, raising, you know, raising your kids, making photographs, is, as you said earlier, that your evolution of it as a photographer was constantly changing, not just the way you were shooting, but your own experience of making photographs. And w one of the things that's really consistent about your work is the level of intimacy that exists in the photographs. And unlike a lot of other photographs that I've seen of Cuba, a lot of other photographs as well composed and, how, and, and as beautifully as they may use light and composition, uh, there's a certain distance. There's an objective distance between the photographer and what they photograph. Yours are not like that at all. Whether you are in like in Havana or in a campo, uh, there's just a completely an immersion there. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm curious to hear from you what what is it that sort of allows you to sort of see that and and make that part of the the photograph because it's 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 difficult enough working with a two-dimensional medium to make a photograph that communicates you know in visual terms but you're able to in in very surprising ways consist, consistently evoke emotion in in your photographs and what what is it about the way that you see, the way that you shoot, the way you experience a moment that allows you to do that consistently? Well, first of all, thank you for saying all of that. Um, I really appreciate this. I think uh, 
I always say to myself, to my students, that a good photograph has to have the right balance of content and form. As you were describing just a moment ago, a lot of photographs, not just from Cuba, from everywhere, uh, a lot of photographers try to impress us, the viewers, with beautifully composed images, but with little content in which people become props, become objects. I always say that before being a photographer, uh, you need to be a decent human being with your defects, with your flaws, and with your good things. Uh, so this approach, for me, comes, I would say, natural, naturally, because uh, I try to avoid just the beautiful composition. I mean, in my pictures, um, there are, I mean, we can talk about how my my, my vision has evolved. I, I mean, the lens of choice at the time of Cuba, or even prior to Cuba, was the 28. There was no other lens I would use. So, you know, people say of that, which is fine, and I like, I used to like that very much. But the intimacy comes if you are a sensible, sensitive person that is willing to look at the people, not just as objects. And I'm not going to mention names because I don't want to upset anybody. But, um, you know, I'm interested in just capturing, as you said, rightly so, feelings, emotions, not just making beautiful and dry, meaningless, feelingless compositions. So the two things have to go hand in hand. And uh, I would say that by spending long period of time, you are no longer a photographer parachuting himself in and out of a country. But spending time is key to be able to delve into life, into the many layers of everybody's life. And uh, if you're lucky, because it's not automatic, but if you're lucky and you spend a lot of time with some people, especially in my case of Cuba, we can say with my, far, uh, with my farmer's friend, but even with strangers. I mean, of course, I, I, will, I, would be, uh, I would be a liar if I would say that I did spend a lot, a lot of time with all my subjects, because as a street photographer, as you will know, if you, if you walk in the streets, sometimes, yes, you're invited in into a house or sometimes you can strike a conversation. But most of the time, if you want to capture the quintessential moment, you need to really be quick and fast and ask for no permission. So there is no conversation. There is something you see uh, that you feel you're drawn to and you just have to react. My work in Cuba in all the three books, I would say, combines a completely street approach, photography style, with pictures of my family and my farmer's friends and some acquaintances in Havana, people that invited me in and allowed me to spend some time with them. Uh, so this is, I think, a hallmark which uh, you brought out. Uh, and I think... Uh, Going back, and then I, I will let you 
oh, ask me something else. But see, I've been doing that just to give you a sense. Uh, I've been teaching, as I said, for 18 years, which means that instead of changing workshop every year and finding locations, new locations, for the last 18 years of my life, I've come to this island, the island of Sicily, to photograph the Easter of the Easter celebration, the Passion of Christ, in the same three locations. So after a while, and it's been happening big time in the last eight years or so, people recognize me. I'm no longer a stranger. So by feeling that I'm welcome into these communities that I photograph, you know, bring the intimacy that you've been talking about uh, in Peru. I mean, I wish I always say to myself, I should learn Quechua, uh, which is the native language, which I haven't yet, but probably I will in the next few years if I'm lucky. Just a matter of going there for two months, get a teacher and just, you know, at least speak broken Quechua so that I can communicate uh, with the people. But even even in Peru, in the Sacred Valley, where the Incas and the pre-Incas civilizations have uh, flowered, you know, by just returning now for so many years, 18 years as well, you know, now I have friends, uh, farmers, they're always my subjects, as you know, humble people, but people that have dignity, people, as I like to say, that they will never make the news. Because uh, even though their situation is humble, you know, luckily they're not in any conflict zones. Um, you mentioned uh, the farmers, and one of them is um, uh, Fidel. Uh, I'm not sure what kind of farmer he is, but um, he was really pivotal in terms of your sort of development as, as a photographer. And what's really interesting, and this is kind of the gist that I've gotten of it, is that your time with him, because you photographed him over a period of, of years, him and his family and his location there. And what I got from it is that you learned from your time with him when not to photograph. And that that was the, the bigger lesson than what you did photograph. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, and this uh, will allow me to share with you a beautiful uh, thing. With Fidel Rodriguez that's his name, or with uh, Miguel, another farmer that we've been friends for the last almost 20 years. You see, there wasn't, except the, the very first time that I met both, in which I took pictures of them first, and then, you know, we start talking, or we start briefly talking. But after we became friends, and when I mean friends, I mean true friends, the only true friends I had in Cuba, we had rituals, and the ritual would mean that I would travel from Havana to the countryside, and most of the time I would take with me a good bottle of rum that they were not able to afford, and uh, the ritual was to greet each other, to open the bottle of rum, to pour the first few drops into the ground to give it to the gods of the earth. And then inevitably we would just drink a few shots. And after that, Fidel Rodriguez is a tobacco farmer. I mean, he grows other crops, but 
is uh, most of the time when it's tobacco time, he grows tobacco. Uh, so he would say, he would ask me, Ernesto, would you like to smoke a cigar? And I'm not, I'm a non-smoker, but I couldn't to Fidel cigars. So he would run into the tobacco house, which is the place where the cigar, uh, where the tobacco leaves have to be uh, sort of hang for three months to release some of the uh, acidity that they contain. And uh, it would bring a stash of uh, dried out leaves. It would choose the best and uh, would take the vein out of each leaf and it would roll up a cigar and it would hand it to me. And I would invariably smoke it. I mean, we smoked it together when he was still smoking. The last time I went, because he's not well physically, he's not smoking anymore. Uh, but that was a ritual. Then, after all of that, and maybe having a meal together, then I will raise my camera. So that is the intimacy that we're talking about. Respecting and living my life, not just as a photographer, but as human being. So then when I would raise the camera, I knew that I had the access. I didn't have to say, can I take a picture of you? I knew that I could take pictures and, you know, he was, he and his family were very nonchalant about no posing or just being natural. And the pictures that you saw in El Campo and also in Bazan, Cuba, but also there are in the Isla, a few of him. Uh, of him. Um, they all reflect the intimacy that is so dear to me. How did that inform how you photographed subsequently when you were photographing people where you didn't have um, the opportunity to spend extensive time with them? Well, uh, as I said just a moment ago, I mean, sometimes you have to be a street photographer, especially when you get to a new place. Uh, you cannot have the intimacy right away. That's why... I, I keep returning to the same locations for, you know, extended period of time. So by that time, uh, you know, I get to know some people and, uh, but there is always a part of me which will continue to photograph strangers, but uh, it's a combination of photographing strangers and photographing uh, people that I know. Yeah. It's always like that. I hope that you are really enjoying this interview and the many others that we've provided you since 2006. There are a lot more shows now that are vying for your attention than when we started. And so we appreciate you making us part of your life. If you want to support us, there are so many things you can do. You can become a Patreon supporter and contribute $5 or more a month or make a one-time contribution via PayPal. You can write a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And even better, if you really enjoy an episode, spread the word via an email to a friend, a post on your social networks, or using old school word of mouth. All of it is important and invaluable. So thanks for your support and being a part of the TCF community.
Help the Candid Frame to continue bringing you great conversations with some of the world's best photographers. You can do this by supporting our Patreon effort by committing as little as $5 or more a month. When you do this, you not only help us to meet the cost of production, but provide us the time and resources we need to bring you conversations you won't hear anywhere else. Sign up today by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. Thank you. Your time when you began photographing in Cuba was uh, simultaneously the time that the island was impacted by the fall of the Soviet Union, who had subsidized um, the country's uh, econ- economy for, for for decades. And so that resulted in a lot of deprivation, a lot of just a lot of struggle um, for for people in terms of you know food and just resources and as as much as people love to talk about how beautiful the the, uh, the Cuban people are and how welcoming they are, what that underlying issue of the, the the struggle of just existing is always part and parcel of of their lives. And in terms of you as 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 a photographer, being able to, even though you're not there as a photojournalist, to be able to capture all those those facets. Um, but still maintain a, a level of respect and dignity of your subjects. Uh, can you explore that? Because I think it's sometimes very obvious for it's, for some people who see maybe poverty or they see something, and they'll take a, a photograph that doesn't necessarily um, r- reflect the person's sort of dignity. They, again, going back before where they're basically being sort of objectified. Um, so in terms of your, your intent and your responsibility as a photographer, how do you sort of, how did you find yourself addressing, you know, these, the issues of wanting to create a complex photograph that revealed all, you know, the complete facets of, of Cuban life? Well, I feel that it's important to respect the people that are in front of you. As I said earlier, you know, I don't like pictures where I see people being used as objects, as props. And you know, there are quite a few of those which are quite successful. And I'm happy for, for, for the photographers because, you know, that's their approach. Um, I mean, I've, I've taken some difficult pictures, uh, which are particularly in the first book, which shows, as you said, the dramatic situations uh, that the country was living after the collapse of the Soviet Union. But um, in spite of the very difficult situations I found myself in, I use that respect. Even if I took a picture without asking for permission, as it was the case in most of the pictures, from particularly the first book from Cuba, uh, except from the ones of my family and my farmer friends. Uh, so, and then, you know, I was careful when it came to editing the work to show pictures that combine content and form that were respectful, that show a sense of dignity, a sense of proud that, you know, the Cuban people do have to possess in large quantities, I would add, and that's of the Cubans that I love so much. In spite of their poverty, 
uh, you know, they still maintain their dignity. And that's why, you know, as I said earlier, you know, they were in a very generous way willing to prepare coffee or serve a meal in particular in the countryside where the situations economic situation was slightly better because you know as you can imagine farmers can raise animals that they can slaughter uh, so they're always i mean pig is uh, one of the main meat that cubans love uh, so um, not every time but most of the time when i would go especially with my students to see fidel or some of the other farmers I mean, there was like uh, an unspoken agreement that, I mean, it came natural to me and, of course, the students as well. I mean, he was slaughtering and preparing a pig for us with all the other things like uh, the rice, the vegetables and everything else. So I told my students and I told myself first, you need to give something back, which is something also very, very important, which goes with the dignity and with the respect. Give it back. Give something back. Honestly, I cannot give back every time I go on a trip. But, um, you know, giving back to him, in particular, I will tell you the story, allowed him to receive hard currency, which... Uh, at the beginning was not allowed to have, the Cubans could not hold dollars. Then, you know, Fidel Castro realized that, you know, in order to survive, they had to accept dollars. So Cubans were finally allowed to accept dollars. And with those dollars, that was, I had four or five workshops a year in Cuba, so we go visit him often enough. Uh, he was able to save enough money so that when uh, one of the many hurricanes hit the islands and devastated his house and his tobacco house, uh, with the money that he had saved, he was able, without having to rely on any government uh, help, to rebuild it. And he gave me a sense of pride uh, that I could see that thanks to our generosity, um, you know, he was better off than many other people around him. Giving back, it's uh, something that, I mean, I, I keep doing. I mean, for the first time uh, in Sicily last year, I brought a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, pictures that had taken over the years. And you can imagine how moved some of the people were because some of the people in the picture that already passed away. So the people that received the picture received a gift, something special, something that they didn't have maybe uh, with uh, their grandmother or with their, pa, with their father. So uh, it's something that I'm doing more and more now. Uh, so, you know, in my next trip, which will be in Brazil, I'm bringing a stack load of photographs to give to the families that I've been working with for the last 12 years. You see, my work, even in Brazil, uh, in Mexico, is relying still on the ability to 
get into families, houses, and become an acquaintance and sometimes a friend. And uh, by giving back those pictures or bringing food, I mean, for instance, when we go to Brazil, you know, the first thing that I tell my students is that we need to bring food to all these people. We don't give it right away, uh, but we give it in the end. But every time we give it, they are so thankful. And, uh, and I, as I like to believe, and I strongly believe in that, the more you give in life in general, not just in photography, the more you get back. I don't know if you agree with me, but this is my case. Uh, I mean, I cannot tell you. Uh, if I'm being generous with members of my family or with my subjects, invariably and I have some very special pictures to bring back home with us. Yeah, it's a, it's a good attitude to have. You've mentioned your, your workshops and, and your books. And one of the things about whether you're teaching or when you're sitting down to edit a body of work is that you learn a lot about yourself as a person and as a photographer. And I'm curious to hear from both things, both your workshops and producing the many books that you've done, what have you learned and how about yourself and, as, and your photography that have been really sort of key lessons for you? Well, I would say the most important lesson is to be humble. I'll give you a good example of that. Uh, as you might have read, my first Cuba book was edited by me of my students. You know well enough that most of most of photography books are usually edited by the photographer and at best five, six close friends or editors and that's it. So I, why I'm, I'm saying that I, I'm humble because instead of being on the ivory tower and saying I'm the teacher and you're my students and I'm, I mean, a lot of my colleagues, when I tell them that I, sh I show my, my pictures to my students to, for them to edit them, even though some of the students might be attending the workshop for the first time, they say, you're nuts. <laughs> well, well, I'm not nuts. Uh, I'm, I'm a wise person, I believe, because I always believe that I mean, as you can imagine, it needs to take a lot each one of my students to convince me to take pictures off. But when they are eloquently enough to convince me to take pictures off, I do take them off and the picture and the book, the project becomes stronger. So uh, this editing, I, I, the way I edit, I call it choral editing because it's like a choir you know I hear so many different voices I'm in the process as you know right now because I'm about to uh, come out with a God willing with a new book on on the same island <laughs> uh, which is another story which we can talk about but um, you know and uh, you know right now I've had at least 70 students giving me their opinion and even if each one of them 
gives me a hint or tells me something uh, to take one picture hour or to move it in the sequence or uh, today I was talking to one of them I was showing him some pictures from Sicily and you know he gave me a few suggestions including a beautiful one um, to include in this uh, Easter Passion book that I'm also working on to celebrate hopefully the 20 years that I've been taking pictures in Sicily of the same three locations which I call the Triangle of Faith uh, you know to include some uh, pages of uh, almost transparent paper in which uh, he was reciting by heart, you know, a beautiful canto, a religious canto that he had learned when he was a little boy and said that could be a beautiful break through the sequence that people can read also as part of, as an integral part of the book. So choral editing has been key and when I founded Bazan Photo Publishing in 2006, immediately after leaving Cuba and landing in Mexico in Veracruz, you know, I had no clue, I swear it, that I only knew that I had one book to make, the first one. Uh, I didn't have any idea, trust me, I'm being humble and I'm being honest. I had no idea that I was going to do a color book on the farmers. I had no idea that I had, I had enough pictures to do the panoramic one. And I had no idea, I should add that, because my students tell me that I'm probably one of the few in the world, uh, but I don't do it for that reason, uh, that I'm also self-publishing the, the work of mo my most talented students. So far we've done three. I'll send, I'll send them to you so that you can look at them. One is Barbara's, mm -hmm. her connection. And interestingly enough, talking about Barbara, we just exchanged uh, Facebook messages two days ago, and she said something that left me speechless. She said, Ernesto, you've done three books of your students, and uh, those three students were all together in the very workshop that you had to teach in Mexico, when you were told by the Cuban authorities that you could no longer teach workshops in Cuba. So that's pretty uncanny. Wow. I mean, I didn't even think about that. But And uh, those, three those three students were there. There's a lot, of, a lot of other students in a very selfish way when I told them that I couldn't teach anymore. said, okay, give our money back, which I did. But Barbara, Giorgio, and Willard were there and you know Wheeler Pate who was the first book that I self-published by one of my students she's almost 80 years old she's taken the longest number of workshop with me over 26 um. <laughs> which I think nobody will ever break then Barbara came out and then Giorgio which we, we just published that two months ago with this beautiful book called Pathos and you know Barbara just a few days ago Baronex told me that we were all there, and it's pretty amazing. Yeah, and you're referencing Barbara Peacock, who is a um, former guest of the of the show. She's a lovely, lovely woman. Yeah. Um, but what you're saying really sort of speaks to the, the spirit of you as a as a teacher, because I think workshop is probably does a disservice for what you managed to create, because 
you seem like that so many people who have studied with you um, have built a relationship with you, not only to the point that they've returned to study with you over and over again, but that they were really integral to the creation of your initial books in terms of the Kickstarters that you, you created. A lot of your students basically were giving back to you in much the same way you were giving back to Fidel and the other people. You had given them so much that they felt the least they could do was help you to actually you know, create these beautiful, beautiful books that you've done uh, of, uh, you know, of Cuba and that you continue to, to produce. So I think that really is sort of a, a testament to who you are, not just as a photographer, but as a, as a person. And it must be incredibly gratifying. It is. And now I'm giving back uh, to my students for all the loyalty that they've shown and their talent. And as I like to say, I'm putting them, total, total uh, unknown photographers, most of them are not professional photographers except Barbara Peacock, uh, Willard Pate, uh, she's, um, you know, uh, I mean, English literature teacher at a university in the U.S. Uh, so anyway, uh, I'm giving back something to them and uh, when I founded the publishing house, as I told you, I had no clues that all of that was coming. So once again, I can say that, you know, the energy, let's call it this way, that has been accompanying me since I was born and has been accompanying me as a photographer for the last 42 years is letting me see slowly what it has in the store for me. Uh, so now there are three books we're working in, at least on other three or four, which are in the making. And interestingly enough, it's important also to mention that uh, the three books that I self-published by my students, they're all work that lasted for over a decade. Uh, so time is key to the type of photography that I do. I mean, and we'll get to this later, but, you know, some people are asking me now, how is it possible that only in three years of returning to Cuba, you've been able to come up with a book? And I, my answer is very simple. Uh, yes, I've been taking pictures there for three years, but don't forget that I spent 14 years of my life there and then also add on to that. 10 years of exile, of not going back. So when once I returned in 2016, exactly 10 years and 10 days later, since we had left in 2006, you know, I was like a sponge. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I was, uh, I was a sponge and I was also able to, to see so many vibrant emotions. Also because, you know, a hasty, difficult departure like the one that we had left a lot of uh, open wounds yeah. that I can tell you are still there. It's, it's interesting that you've had two opportunities to experience Cuba afresh. The first time and then the second time after the exile. And how, not so much how different was Cuba because I'm sure that it did change to some degree during that, that, that 10 years. But how did you feel 
you had changed and how did that inform the way you, you saw Cuba? That's a great question and it's a very sensitive question. And I'm not surprised that you're asking me that being the sensitive person you are. See, I've changed more than anything else. I'm 10 years older. My vision has changed. Uh, there is no longer 28. The 28 has been gone a long time ago. It was uh, replaced by 35. And then now it's been replaced now, I mean, meaning in the last 10 years or so, it's been replaced by 50. So my current pictures reflect that Cuba, as you said, has changed to a certain degree. But let me tell you, it still remains, once you get out of the touristy areas of Havana, the same Cuba that I experienced 20 years ago. So my pictures are becoming much more minimalistic. I'm, I'm becoming more like uh, a haiku poet mm. uh, in which, you know, you have one sentence and you have to convey poetry. Uh, so, and there is plenty of poetry you don't need necessarily. I mean, with the 50, it's not, it's not as easy for me and also, I'm not, my vision has changed, so I'm not as interested as I was in the past to create multi-layer photographs. But uh, I'm still looking for the same or for a different type, I would say, of poetry, which is very minimalistic. So, you know, the pictures, most of them have a few subjects, mostly two or one. And, but, you know, the atmosphere that... I try to capture, convey, convey this balance that we've been talking about between uh, content and form with this more power. I think I'm becoming more of a poet. I've be, become more of a poet in the last 80 years, and my work also in other countries does show that. So this is what I would say. What's fascinating about uh, what you've done in terms of the book is um, the inclusion of your mother in there, uh, including her writing in there. And I think that's both very uh, moving, but I'm really curious as what you what you felt she brought to the body of work. Because she wasn't with you when, she, when you made all those photographs. She was back in Sicily. But she obviously contributed something that you considered invaluable to, to the whole body of work. Can you tell me a little more about that? Yeah, my mother, well, I inherited from my mother the artistic soul. My father gave me, uh, taught me to be perseverant, uh, to just follow my dream as he followed his. I mean, he was in an operating room when he was 16, thanks to an uncle of his who was a surgeon. So, but going back to my mother, you know, uh, she has been writing many things. She's a dentist, expert, um, among other writers, but she has never been able, and that's a shame, unfortunately, to produce body work, writing body work to publish. But she has been carefully, particularly before, 
uh, watching my pictures and she would look at them and would say absolutely nothing. And then a few months later when I would see her again, she would hand me <laughs> some loose pieces of paper and say, that's for you. Hmm. Uh, have you have you read what she wrote for Al Campo? No, I haven't had a chance to re- read through it. Okay, well, it's outstanding. Um, I mean, I will send you the books so that you can read it and appreciate it on your own. But when I read it for the first time, I was shocked because, I mean, the intuition that she used to describe things about my photograph, nobody else has ever gone that deep. And she said in the end that when I take pictures, I take pictures of things that I'm not even aware of really right, because taking picture is an intuitive act and uh, you don't have too much time to think about many things, you just take the picture because it's going to disappear immediately after you see that. And um, I'll tell you, you know, it's a beautiful story that combines what, I, what we've been talking about. I was in Bahia, in Salvador, which became for many years my new Havana for the cultural roots, similar roots that they have and they share, you know, over three and a half million African slaves were brought to Salvador, which was the first capital of Brazil. At least 10 to 20 millions, maybe more, perished during the journey. So I've been photographing in Salvador for now 12 years. One morning, well, actually one afternoon, I went out. Well, my students were not, had not arrived yet. And uh, I said, let me go this way. So... I found myself in an area where I'd never been on the beach and there were some man-made steps on the black rocks that I descended upon. By the time I got down to the beach, to the sea, there was this drunk fisherman that sort of welcomed me, said hi, and he did like that like a military salute and he was drunk so he was bit crazy but listen to this so he did this then he was doing other things and then all of a sudden without anybody asking him for that he just he was he didn't have a t-shirt on and the sun was setting and there was and the sun setting in the sea and i see him reaching down to to the rocks and all of a sudden and here you need to react. I mean, yes, I thought that something very special was happening before my eyes, but I just had to react. I couldn't think what it was. That Now I'll tell you what it was, but basically picked up a rusted chain, black chain, mm. and he put it on his shoulder for 10 seconds, and he started wobbling about along the rock, and then he just tossed it away. Wow. And he started. He picked up a flute, and he started playing the flute to his dogs. But with hindsight, and after having processed the film, and on my way back home, sort of remembering, 
he, he has allowed me to photograph something that I, I never thought was going be allowed for me to photograph, and that is the arrival of the slaves from Africa to Salvador. So once I saw the picture, and luckily I did get the picture, I realized that unlike Cuba, and that's important, it's an important things to say, that unlike Cuba, I mean, my work in Cuba is about Cubans, it's about the island, the uniqueness of the island, you know, uh, the uniqueness of the government that they have, uh, the people and all that. But unlike Cuba, in Brazil, in Bahia, where I've been photographing without even knowing until that moment in which it showed me the way, I've been photographing the black roots of Brazilian culture. And then, you know, once it became clear in my mind and I started looking at the picture I'd taken, I realized how strong that was and it will be the theme of one of the books. Uh, so just imagine 10 years without having a clue, just taking pictures and assembling them, editing them. And then all of a sudden, something like that give a sense to this apparent aimless returning and walking without a specific theme. Yeah. So that's pretty that's amazing. amazing. Yeah. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? I always give the same answer. So <laughs> <laughs> the answer is uh, will be Robert Frank. And I'll tell you why. I mean, first of all, I mean, for the amazing books that he did back in the in the 1950s of America, which was completely looked down upon by many critics and by many people. Why do I consider him my spiritual mentor? Because he was never a teacher of mine, but then I got to meet him. Uh, because, as I told you earlier, I picked up the phone. That's another uncanny story. I mean, I met him when I was still attending SVA in a bookstore in New York. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, was, I was so shocked to have Robert Frank two meters from me that I did not gather the strength <laughs> to go up to him and say hi. So that was my first encounter with him. Then, after publishing uh, Passing Through, which is my second book, I sent him a copy. I finally got all of his address, and he wrote back to me. Then many years passed, and then I was in my Brooklyn apartment. My father had passed away, I think, a year before, and I heard him urging me to pick up the damn phone and call Robert Frank. So I just picked up the phone, called him up, he answered the phone, and I mean, I was a stranger to him. I mean, he couldn't even remember that we had exchanged letters and all of that. So I said, listen, I'm an Italian photographer, my name is such and such, I'm a great admirer of your work, can I come and visit you? He said, how about tomorrow? Oh, wow. 
you know, if you would call other photographers, they would say, oh, yeah, maybe two months from now, or maybe they would just hang up on you. So I went, I went up to his apartment, and um, his wife told me he's still sleeping. <laughs> so just <laughs> re return a year, a year later, an hour later. So I returned an hour later, and he received me in his bedroom. <laughs> so what does he tell me? What I told you before, that before being, you know, the great photographer that he is, he's a decent human being. Uh, I mean, uh, so I had brought with me, you know, my books to give them to him as a gift. Uh, I brought his books, <laughs> hopefully, hoping that he would sign them for me. And, uh, you know, he was living through Bazan, Cuba, and he made a very laconic comment. He said, <laughs> you work on it for a long time, right? <laughs> and, I just, and I just say, yes, only 14 years. And he smiled. <laughs> That's and, wonderful. Uh, then, he, he got a, then he got a phone call. And, uh, I mean, I took advantage of that. I picked up my cell phone as he was talking, and he was turning the person down because he was with me and he didn't want to be bothered. And I took a picture of him talking on the phone, but also living through my book, which I use in the most recent body of work that I self-published, which is called Before You Grow Up, which is a photo, a uh, uh, family photo album, sui generis type of book. But, you know, it's a book about my life, about, I want it to be a book about my Cuban-Italian family, meaning me and my wife and our children, because I've taken pictures of them since they were in our belly. But then I realized that I couldn't leave behind my Sicilian family. And then my father died in a arrivement to see him for the last time, and I instinctively carried a camera with me. So I took a picture in the the funeral parlor and um, you know which I incorporated into the book it's a picture in which is lying in the coffin you it's like very peaceful you can hardly see him but you see him yeah. and then there is my my mother standing up and then behind I mean which I didn't see when I took the picture there is a, there is a large image of the virgin then the next morning, since I had to leave again, they, he has asked to be cremated. So I went to the cremation with my brother, and um, all of a sudden we're waiting, waiting, and all of a sudden we see the smoke, the black smoke coming out. And it took three frames. Two are completely boring. And then one, I don't know what happened in the sky, the, the clouds got brighter, the sky got darker, there's really deep black smoke coming out, and I use it too, and I just call the last portrait, and I then put the day in which my father passed away. Mm. Well, I look forward, I look forward to seeing all that work. Yeah, 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 right now as I'm talking to you, he's looking at me because some of the ashes are here, and there is a picture of him just looking straight at me right now. So I'm, I'm sure that he's here with us 
enjoying the conversation. Well, thank you, because it was a really great conversation. I really enjoyed talking with you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks to Ernesto for sharing his time and story with us. You can find out more about him and his work by visiting BazanPhotoWorkshops.com and his publishing company, Mogbook.com. Also, check out our YouTube channel where I offer comments on photography submitted by TCF listeners who contribute to the Candid Frame Flickr poll. Check out the TCF Flickr poll and our YouTube channel by clicking on the link in the show notes and the website. My latest book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, is now available. And I'm proud to say that it was just released in German in Europe. So danke. If you're interested in the English version, you can purchase it today and receive 40% off the list price when you order it from the Rocky Nook website. Use the promo code Pirello40 at checkout to take advantage of the discount. And receive three free copies of my previously published ebooks by signing up for the Candid Frame mailing list, where I share thoughts about life, photography, and keep you updated on TCF events. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or donating through PayPal. Thanks to Jacob Golden for his recent contribution. And not all episodes may be available on your podcast app of choice. So to download, listen, and share your favorite episodes, get the Candid Frame app for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your support, it's free. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>